Welcome to the State of the Markets Christmas Special. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guests are Jeff Norcott and Dominic Frisby. Jeff Norcott is an English comedian, writer and political commentator who first performed in 2001 and has appeared on Mock the Week, Live at the Apollo and Question Time. He's written for The Daily Telegraph, The Independent and Spiked. Dominic Frisby is a British author, comedian and voice actor. He's best known as a co-host of The Money Pit. Tim and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a prosperous 2021. Thank you for all your support over the years. We really appreciate it. There's a bit of bad language in this one, so you might want to turn it up a bit. Enjoy. Jeff Norcott, Dominic Frisby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. Now, where do we, where to begin in our little tr- jungle treasure of delights, of comedy delights? Jeff, 1971. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Nixon gold shock. Yeah. I think that's where it started to go tits up. Possibly that or 1914. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to take the Douglas Adams view that it all started when we came down out of the trees. And then some people said, well, we should never have left the seas. <laughs> Maybe. So, Jeff, it is a tremendous pleasure to have you on. Uh, you may remember I snatched at um, the Edinburgh Fringe last year. I snatched a cheeky handshake with you after one of the one of the gigs. Oh, what, in that weird corridor downstairs. Yes, yes, yeah. I bet you just come. I bet you just come out the bog. <laughs> it was a really, it's a really firm handshake, and unlike a lot of the limp snowflakes in Edinburgh, it had purchase, and it really stuck in my memory. I'm glad about that. In that corridor, what happened was I had to leave often at the same time as a lot of the punters, and quite often I would come out, and there would be women telling their husbands how much they hated my act and why the hell did I I bring them and then so that that happened on one occasion and then I I knew the guy was a fan so I got her to hold the camera while she took a photo of me and her husband together so it was it was a fun corridor fun corridor now that now that is a a phrase to conjure with did 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 you meet Jeff in his fun corridor in Edinburgh it was a corridor of uncertainty (laughs) (laughs) And Dominic, uh, how do you feel about the, the complete absence of, of the Fringe this year? Because we, it was going to be our main corporate event. And of course, it, it didn't go anywhere because everything got fucking locked down. Well, I, uh, ever being the libertarian, took advantage of uh, circumstance. And I actually went up to Edinburgh this year uh, with a friend of mine during the lockdown. And we shot a documentary all about um, the Edinburgh Fringe in the year that it wasn't happening. Brilliant All about idea. the history of the fringe, because it's an incredible, um, you know, free market story, which I'll tell you in a second. And um, we shot it. And then my agent says, oh, this is brilliant. You've got to get loads of uh, comedians to come and do interviews for this. Uh, and so we did. And we got an interview with Jimmy Carr and Al Murray and Henning and various others, not Jeff Norcott, unfortunately. It took us a month to pin Jimmy Carr down. <laughs> And I've heard he I've heard he is a bit of a wriggler. Well, he's a lovely bloke. And I was actually I helped Jimmy buy some bitcoins in March of this year. He phoned me up Ooh. and said, I want to buy gold and I want to buy Bitcoin. But he's your friend and, now. Well, and we timed it rather well. And I can tell you that Jimmy Carr now owns 
one millionth of the world's Bitcoin supply. Wow. <laughs> Do you own any uh, Bitcoin, uh, Jeff? Uh, Bitcoin, no. I mean, I get the emails in my junk, and apparently there's some fantastic <laughs> deals waiting for me. I just haven't got around to actually sealing the deal. But the the net result of all this was that uh, Jimmy agreed to come on the show and do the interview, but it took us over a month to pin him down. So having shot this entire documentary that was to be broadcast in the year the festival didn't happen, because of Jimmy Carr that was going to make it more marketable, we missed the sort of boat, so we've been unable to sell it. But it's a, it's a very interesting story nonetheless. As a consumer, as consumers of, of the stand-up art, I mean... Is stand-up going to come back next year or are some people going to be flushed out of the system forever? Well, hopefully. I mean, being a free market tour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with any luck, uh, this, will, this will be something I'll get quoted on. But no, I mean, they were, the, the thing about stand-up that, that perhaps a lot of people have missed is that it it'd already been in quite a steady state of decline. Um, for- but that's presumably because it was got so painfully woke. Uh, possibly. I, I think that there were other things too, was like 10 years ago, there was a parent company of one of the main chains, Jonglers went down. Um, and then, you know, there was just a tightening of people's kind of leisure budget. So the contraction h- had already happened, but there will be, I suspect, quite a brutal, you know, the people that have capital um, will be able to withstand it. And, you know, you could, and, you know, when you've got capital, you can invest in other things like, you know, like Dominic, I, I did like a front room fringe during the summer. Um, and if you've got a little bit of a following, I could then do an online version of my Edinburgh show, which actually, weirdly, was more lucrative than any Edinburgh run I'd ever done. <laughs> uh, which just shows you how capitalist the fringe is, right? Um, so, so yeah, stand up will it will it will slim down, and and you know, unfortunately, it will become a hobbyist thing for a lot of people. But I think you know, when people are really good at it. They will find a way now, whether that be through social media or something else. You, the, the really good people will still come through. Yeah, My- the, the, I was going to say the, the the reality of comedy is that is that people always want to laugh in the same way that they want to eat and go to the loo and take exercise. Laughing's a ba- basic human function, so comedy's not going anywhere. But it's also a bit like the commodities industry and mining is that it's very cyclical. So you have these booms and then you have these busts. And, you know, there was a big sort of bust in the late 90s, early noughties. And there was no stand-up on the telly for years and years and years. And it gradually grew. The live circuit quietly grew and you had the emergence of clubs like Jonglers. And then that was successful and they opened a chain of them. But it still couldn't get on the telly. So there was this, it's a bit like, you know, um, when nobody invests in mining you get this huge build-up uh and and so there was loads and loads of really good acts just waiting to sort of go over the waiting for the mine waiting for like the something in the dam to go and then that thing in the dam that went was michael mcintyre's live at the apollo i think that was about 2006 and suddenly loads of acts got on the telly with that the the internet came they all went viral on the internet and so there was this suddenly this huge boom in, in stand-up comedy on the telly, even though it had already happened in the live circuit. Then the live circuit contracted, but it still continued on the telly. And you'd have all these telly stars that would draw punters away just from ordinary comedy clubs that would have maybe a comedian and three, uh, a compare and three comedians, something like that. And so that hurt the live comic. So even though it was booming on the telly, it was actually contracting in the real world. And I think now a lot of people have got 
very tired of a lot of the tropes of stand up. You know, a lot of the time you, you can you can just say things that we call them like devices, generic comparing devices mm. that you can use. You utter an opinion or something like that. And it's just got very, very tired. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's not just the wokeness of it. It's just one of the other reasons why comedy on the telly's maybe going through a bit of a fallow patch is just people are I'm talking specifically about stand up now is people are just a bit they're just a bit tired of it the devices are tired and it's mm. it's lacking originality and so we're going back to the circuit which has had the mother of all recessions thanks to covid and there'll be a huge cleaning out and great comics will probably never you know that you've never heard of will probably never work again they'll probably take up other things and just go do you know what I can't be bothered with the hustle of phoning up comedy clubs, trying to get booked, all the shit you have to go through, especially now when you're competing. There's so many sort of woke agenda that you're competing against. So it's a very cyclical industry. And I think we're in their sort of the dark days, if you like, where telly's about to fall off a cliff. Yeah. And the live circuit's already died, but it will come back for sure. On a, on a point of order, though, you say because of COVID, strictly speaking, Whatever's happened in nearly every case, it's because the government's is uh, because of the government's hysterical, bedwetting, Karenish overreaction to <clears throat> COVID. Objection! Objection sustained. Overruled. <laughs> Appeal denied. <laughs> no, I agree. Well, I agree. I mean, one thing that's been interesting comedically, obviously, is, is the government have kind of uh, well, they brutalised large sections of the economy, and, and um, you know, the left that have been. You know, on the Tories back since 2010, on almost every front, you do find this weird situation comedically where the left are broadly on side with most of what the government are doing. Like they're secretly uh, in favour of, of this stuff. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, why do you need right wing comedians or comedians of a different political character? Well, I'd like to say we, we've we helpfully picked up the slack in this respect in, in criticising the government because, you know, <laughs> it was only it was only like <clears throat> a month after. You know, Tim Davey made his his comments about political diversity. And then suddenly, you know, people say, well, why would you have like Norcott or Frisbee on? Because they'd only kind of ask kiss the government, which is, you know, even more inaccurate in the case of Donnick. And then a, a month later, I'm sort of finding I'm the only one that's questioning. No, the, not the only one, but we're the, the only ones questioning the logic of all this. So um, I think that, you know, and it, it bespeaks another problem in stand up, you know, just talk about the, the woke thing. It isn't just woke things it is a problem when stand-up comedians one part of their agenda is to seem like a good person in inverted commas you know mm. i don't i think that that shuts down a lot of angles for comedy so if you sort of associate lockdown with a superficially positive version of a caring reaction then that's another reason why you wouldn't go anywhere near it you know so um yeah yeah full stuff thank god for thank god for us is what one, one thing that we've asked <laughs> every agree. guest one mm. thing we've asked every guest uh, over the last few few weeks as we pivoted to a much more coronavirus um orientated show is uh, what is it cock up or conspiracy or both or neither because <laughs> i've 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 coined the phrase cuntspiracy which i'm hoping will 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 trend but something tells me that it probably won't on twitter um and it probably won't at the sort of the local uh, local vicarage well, vicarage tea parties 
I suppose what I often think is that, one, I do not have a lot of faith in government or governments. You know, it's partly where my political character comes from. I just don't think they're that good at things. So the idea that they had it within them <laughs> to coordinate this thing that had some sort of greater end, I, I, I struggle with, with that. And then I also look at the fact that most of the kind of Western European countries have done roughly the same thing. So I think, well, why? But then that, that's not that's not an answer um, in and of itself. I, th- I think that a lot of it comes from, you know, risk aversion. And, 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 you know, the fact that, you know, people often overcorrect in their lives, don't they? They date a guy who's a complete arsehole, and then the next guy they date is boring as shit, right? So in the first wave, <laughs> the first wave, a lot more people died than were expected. So it's arguable that in the second wave, the reaction was born of what happened in the first. It was an, uh, it was an overcorrection, perhaps. I caught there's a one of our guests recently came up with I think is it Hanlon's rule or Hanlon's law never attribute to malice that which can be explained for by incompetence. Occam's isn't that Occam's razor? No, it's it's, it's Hanlon Hanlon's razor. Hanlon's razor. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask just going back to the comedy stuff before you actually when we go back to normal comedy um, on the circuit, do you actually get? told what you can and can't say are there any restrictions or you because of your names you just they just know that you're you're going to deliver well it's you i mean it's sort of left to the individual nobody's saying there are like safe space comedy clubs now Mm -hmm. and i bet they're about as funny as a bag of shit right but the the uh but they they never turned a profit But it's left to the individual judgment of the comedian. But if, for example, a comedian now goes on and does, you know, I don't know, some kind of material that's totally unacceptable for whatever reason, you know, racist material or whatever, he just, the audience won't laugh and the comedian won't get booked again. And so, you know, the the, the market functions quite adequately without um, external impositions being put on it. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear because that's the job really of comedians in my view it's to find that edge and to push that edge and also who who's going to come up with any common sense about what's going on other than comedians because of course you have a unique way of of explaining what's happening in life and that's kind of the main point of humor isn't it to to show what's going on in a a comedic way and you don't at the moment we have so much material it's it's kind of unbelievable well, what, you know, one, there was one line while I was able to gig that I was sort of saying, you know, one of the biggest problems we've got in this country, we've got a lot of really old people that are, you know, a burden economically, I said. And, you know, nature nature made a noise, but we did not listen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that isn't, an, that isn't a pleasant thought, right? But what you can be sure, sure of as a comic is often that everyone, there's a lot of people that sort of thought that, right? You know, not in your better moment, maybe, but you've sort of thought, well, you know, there are a lot of people just clinging on in there. So sometimes you can you can just give a voice. To, it's, it's, it's a sort of weird irony that you're just sort of saying what most people are thinking anyway. Yeah. Uh, but there are these social protocols. I mean, it's slightly different. TV and radio is, is a bit different because what happens there is that, you know, you get probably a live audience that you perform to in the studio. And then, you know, if they go for something, then it goes through an edit process. And so, again, no one specifically tells you not to say something, 
but it's done, you know, it's done indirectly in a way. It's done because most TV audiences will more likely be metropolitan liberal types. It's done because people who sit in on the edit will probably be a bit like that too. So, so censorship. Who gets booked in the first place? Who gets booked in the first place? Of course, and and you know, censorship is 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 it's it's far more nebulous than than a strict. You can't say that. So what's it like being in your respective households? Is it a bit like not going out and you're always cracking jokes or or do you, when you're writing material, do you keep it to yourself and then test it out on the family? How, how does that work? Well, in my case, I, I live with another comedian, so we test out the material on each other and on my kids <laughs> and she's in that they she's funnier than i am which is quite annoying <laughs> so you just sort of uh, you know you'll be having dinner and then somebody will say something and they'll be, and you'll be bouncing stuff back and, and forward and your kids will be sort of rolling their eyes or and, and then you go oh i've got to remember that one um it's, is that how it works or or, or not well i, I mean uh, uh, different people have different writing processes but if if I'm writing a song, then I'll just slave away, slave away, slave away, and I'll occasionally go. No, to no, that's Enya. I was going to say it's Enya. <laughs> or Anoko Flow. <laughs> but the the um <laughs> the and then occasionally I'll go to other members of the house and go, which lyric do you think's better? Do you think this rhyme, whatever? But when it's actual material uh, that you, you know, spoken stand-up material, you just got to do it. And if if you can't do it in a live comedy club, then you've got to <laughs> practice it on the bloke in the shop and pretend you're having a conversation or practice it on the missus. You know what I mean? You've got yeah. to find ways of practicing it. I saw quite a nice video on Twitter. It was, um, I presume it was from a TV show, and it was a guy who's being asked, you have a choice. You can A, self-isolate with your wife and children, or B, and he goes, B, 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 without even being told what the hell it is. It was funny with me because in the first few weeks of it, I, I struggled and my wife was okay. And and then I kind of eased into the first lockdown a bit. And then I think she started to get worried. I, and I also really wasn't missing stand-up. And I mentioned to her, I said, you know what, babe? I don't think I'd ever go out on the road like I did before. And she looked terrified. I didn't realise that <laughs> me being away was this crucial kind of like a re- release valve for her. But, you know, when I'm writing, there are occasionally, and my wife has got an increasingly dark sense of humour, which I appreciate, but I was like, there'll just be the odd thing that I think I'm so excited about, I'll have to share with her. And I was talking to her about when I tried to watch the film The Goonies recently, and I was, you know, someone like me, I'm going to moan about trigger warnings for films, but ironically, I started watching the film and I was like, wow, this is pretty full on. <laughs> uh, and I was sort of, you know, like going against my own principles. And I was, I was trying to, you know, and my son, who's only four, was asking me about the character of Sloth, uh, you know, the you know the the character in it that says, hey, you guys. And I was sort of trying to explain how that guy would now be uh, taught in mainstream education. And, you know, he, he, he might have quite a few teaching assistants and maybe one of them would have to be quite strong. And it really made me laugh. The idea that he would need a physically strong teaching assistant. So I ran out um, of the the office, told her all of this, and relayed it in as poor details I just did to you. And she just scared <laughs> me, really. She just. <laughs> but I kind of I knew that there's something there. I knew that there's something funny about you know somebody of me who's pro free speech, and then actually watching a film where I thought, you know what, this could have done with a couple of extra trigger warnings. <laughs> have you seen the uh, the pandemic special of South Park yet? I have not. 
there's uh, I was watching it the other day and um it, it, I mean it is funny because I I sort of fell out of love with South Park. So I thought it sort of extended its overextended its welcome, but it is having an absolutely brilliant war when it comes to coronavirus. And it starts with, for example, it starts with Cartman sort of gets out of bed and then he sort of tr- trundles off wearily to his Zoom call. So he has to dial into his Zoom call with all his friends at school and the teacher. And he's got a pre a prepared photo of himself, and he starts going, oh, "It's Rick," and then he just puts the photo in front of the screen and then just fucks off. <laughs> but then they get everyone else wants to go back to school and he just wants to stay at home and just just just, just bunk off and the the teachers are the teachers are all a bunch of Karen's so the teachers are all gone so in the end they have to install the South Park police force instead and then this is they say bullets start flying I thought it was funny anyway you had to be you had to be there really well no I think I think I've I've, I've seen this clip I mean I certainly I, I think that in difficult times, I've certainly noticed that my schadenfreude goes up. Like, I get it gets very basic. The first time I've heard it called that. Schadenfreude? What is it? Schadenfreude? <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. I was trying to be, I was trying to make, basically one thing common to this show is, is my lame attempts at humour. And normally you hear a sort of a, a, a clang of doom as, as the punchline lands and then goes through the floorboards. <laughs> no, no, not in this situation. Just, just generally, other people's misfortune. You know, like yeah. when you're worried about your own circumstances. I mean, it literally, it, I've noticed that in times, in in difficult times in my own life before, that 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 side of my humour is just a brutal need for other people to be unhappy as well. And I, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, I, I think I think so. You know, it, it gets down to literally at some points late at night on YouTube, I'm just googling person falling over. Well, you see, you see my, my, my missus loves that stuff. She absolutely loves it. If somebody falls over or whatever, and I'm like, okay, I don't get that. But we, but for some people, it's, it's like, it's, it's manna from heaven. It's, it's quite, it's all, all to their own, I guess. But we have, we have to give, we have to give credit to one of Paul's, Paul's media picks from the past. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have seen what is objectively the worst film ever made. Do you know what the worst film ever made is? Uh, Rise of uh, World. <laughs> it's 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 run for your wife. With it was an ad- adaptation of the Ray Cooney stage farce. Longest fun it, running farce in the history of the West End. Well, apart from Parliament and um, the <laughs> good one. Thank you, uh, here all day, the tush. And um, it, it, it who's the lead? Who's the lead actor in it? Uh, Paul. Uh, it's Danny Dyer. I don't think it's Danny, Danny Dyer. Dyer. I don't think he did a bad job actually. And, and the, th- with the, 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 the amazing material. thing about this film is Danny Dyer is not even the worst thing in it. It is truly awful. The only reason I, I, I'm triggered by this is that there's one sequence, and IMDb, the reviews are just are just to die for on this. They are completely barbell reviews. The reviews are either zero or 10. Yeah. So if they're 10, it's friends and family of the director. And if they're zero, it's someone who's actually seen the fucking thing. <laughs> and there's one review, and it just says, I'm not kidding, at one point, he stands on a rake and it hits him in the face. I mean, I am already watching this. <laughs> <laughs> you are Danny Dyer fans for all the right and wrong reasons. But as you were talking, I, I Googled it. I could see the strap line of the film is John loved having a wife so much. He got two of them. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, uh, the rest of the film. Isn't it, quite up to that high it, standard of wit and, and, you know, sophistication though. And unfortunately it's not bad. Good. You know, like it's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's it, just bad. It's, it's not like, bad, the ro- like if you've bad. seen the room, I love the room. I think that's oh, the hilarious. room's tremendously funny. That's so funny because it's so bad. It's just brilliant, but this isn't brilliant bad. Have you, have you seen the room? I think I've seen clips of that. You know, in the early stages of YouTube, when people would just say, here's my kind of, uh, you know, when you just put it out, it's like a party trick. I think I've seen some of that. Yeah. 
I think that it's, it's one of my favorite lines in a film ever. It's when he, he goes to see, he, he goes to annoy a famous comedy director. Oh, that's the disaster that, artist. Is that, is that, yeah, yeah, but it's the same thing. It's all no, the no, same, no. Same. Well, it's not. No, because the, the room's the actual material, real film. Though. Yeah, yeah. It's the same source material. And the guy in question, this this is Sa- Savon, idiot Savon. You know, he wrote it, directed it, did the theme tune, sung the theme tune. And he goes, he, he interrupts this guy's dinner, his dinner out with his girlfriend. And um, he says, uh, to be or not to be. And the director just cuts him off and says, no, God, I'm sorry, mate. It's not for you. It's not going to happen for you. Not in a million years. To which his response is, what about after that? i'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on yeah so tell us tell us about um fund management has this how much has fund management been afflicted by woke we haven't got that desperate have we <laughs> <laughs> well i'm just interested uh, jeff and i has have has how much has political correctness got into fund management uh, there's something, there's a, a three-letter acronym. You always have to worry about three-letter acronyms. The worst three-letter acronym at the moment is something called ESG, which is Environmental and Social Governance. And it's basically green, woke crap. So every firm has to have an ESG policy. And our ESG policies will buy what you fucking like, thank you. But you know there's the thing, go woke, go broke. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you, uh, broadly speaking, I think that's quite true. Yeah, I, I would absolutely concur with that. But, but, a lot of these ESG, you know, green energy and so on, they don't go broke because they because they get so much subsidy. Is that right? I think there's, there's something to that, but I mean, we're about to see an, an incredible moment in in market evolution. So you might—I was talking about this with a client just before we came on air. You might remember, you might possibly remember when Vodafone. Um, entered. It was at the height of the sort of 3G mania when the government managed to bilk billions out of the telecom sector. Yeah. And Vodafone entered the FTSE, and I think it entered at 12% of the, the entire FTSE 100. Now, the thing about funds is, most active funds, they were limited by the regulator to only have a maximum position of 10%. So they had to agonize on how, how, how they could crowbar more Vodafone into their portfolios. And of course, it subsequently blew up and all the rest. But it's even better now because Tesla is a stock that many people love to hate, but equally many people love to love. It's a complete cult. Um, we were talking about it in one of our recent shows. Tesla's going into the S&P 500, the, the, the US equivalent of our FTSE, at 14% uh, on current valuations. And it basically means that a whole bunch of dumb shit ETF index tracking funds will be forced to buy the most expensive stock in the world at its most expensive levels in history, surely before it blows up. It's, you couldn't make this stuff up. Is that going to is that going to end um, yeah. that, that ETFs and all that passive? I hope so. I hope so. I hope one of the next tricks that Elon Musk um, will pull off is it will just dis- the, the, the implosion of the likely implosion of Tesla stock will destroy ETF the credibility of ETF investing. It's been going on for years, but you can't have a market that is just you know is just the index because there's no role for the allocation of capital and there's no role for price formation. ETF Jeff means when instead of like you know, being a stock picker and choosing an individual company on like someone like Warren Buffett or someone or Anthony Bolton or just buy you have a, a vehicle which by which you would buy the entire sector. So you would buy a, a gold mining companies ETF, and you'd end up buying some good ones and some shit ones. And so it's it's um, and it's kind of ruined investing for a lot of people. 
but in in many ways it's made it brilliant so i think there's a day of reckoning to come but i mean the markets have been so weird this year i've i mean i've been working 30 years i've never seen anything as, as weird and dysfunctional and that's that's without even getting onto the topic of the politics i mean who won who won the us election i'm going to go with biden yeah he certainly seems like the front runner <laughs> he's measuring fucking curtains in he lads I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen it I saw the, the the best possible thing you know those things when you're trying to sign up for a service and it says select all squares that have like a lamppost on yeah uh, well this one this one says it's, it's, it's basically four photos of Biden fondling various small children relatives saying select all squares with sexual predator Right. <laughs> do, do you know what the thing about Biden that I found so funny the reaction to it is that it just underlines the centre left is the most boring wing of politics by far right even the hard left I find them interesting this is fun the centre left only get excited about continuity that's all they care about it's the only thing that makes them passionate I mentioned this when me and Dominic had a chat on my my podcast and I, I just sort of think there is a part of them that sort of thinks that Biden can just do a Hey kids, I'm getting the band back together and just get back this Obama era administration. And and I I found like getting excited over such an imperfect candidate, like a like it's not even a continuity candidate, it's a continuity from a period that's already, you know, been left behind. The Trump era changed everything. Mm. And, and you know, like the fact the amount of votes he's got suggests that that's not that influence, whether it's him or someone else, isn't going away. And then and then, you know, this, this ridiculous reaction to the point where to Biden's uh, win, where to the point where some U.S. news agencies thought the fireworks for fireworks night in London that, were actually that was, that for Biden. Very, that was very funny. And I just thought, I just thought, how much stuff that's happening in Britain do they think is a tribute to Joe Biden? Like when we were having Sunday lunch the following day, did they think, oh, look what they're doing for Kamala? They're having, <laughs> they're having Sunday roast for Kamala. It's just unbelievable sort of centrist American narcissism. It, it sort of, it, it just showed how, you know, and I had friends that were on Twitter going, oh, we, if we weren't on lockdown, there'd be street parties right now. I'm like, no, they fucking wouldn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> no one what? cares. No one cares. There'd be a lot of people, I would say. I think even a majority of British conservatives would have, would have favoured Biden. That's true to say. But the, 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 the fascination and the voyeurism on American politics, I, I find it a bit embarrassing sometimes. Like We've got enough stuff going on here. Do you think that um, the COVID, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that, the PCR test pandemic has anything in common with Brexit? In other words, the, the country is split down the middle exactly the same way it was over leave and remain. I do think that, that lockdown became like one of the, like Brexit was, almost like a blood test. Do you know what I mean? Like what type are you? And you could certainly file. It, it wasn't as um, as kind of uh, binary as, as you thought it might have been, because I found some people that were very strident remainers also came down on the side of, you know, freedom over the country being one giant fucking open prison, right? Mm. So, so I, I don't think it was entirely clear cut, but it certainly did seem that that the people on the left and Remainers, on balance, seem to favour lockdown a bit more. There's a Karen's, lot of crossover Karen's. in the uh, in the Venn diagram for sure. Mm. I think there's. I think what it is is that is it. It's um. There's some mental zombie. It's not COVID nineteen. There's some mental virus. It's Karen 19, Karen the virus. Karen 19. 
and it's being it's being spread by social media. That's how you get infected. As soon as you you go on Twitter and Facebook and stuff, you get the you get the disease, and then you just have to fight through the medium of your keyboard uh, for the next thirty years of your life until either you die or currency collapses. <laughs> well, it's it's one thing we talked about uh, recently because I had this strange experience about a week ago. It was Elon Musk again. I was trolling. Well, I was just lurking on. Elon Musk's timeline on Twitter, and uh, some person said he he just he just tweeted that he'd had four tests in a day, two positive and two negative. He said this is a hoax. This is this is, this is something something bogus about this. And then some person chipped in and said, um, "Oh, don't be such a space Karen, Elon." And I thought that was quite a good turn of phrase. But then I had I had a look at her uh, anyway, what she said, and I said, "Well, it looks to me like you're the space Karen, Emma." And then I got an I got an immediate pile on from about I think I got two, nearly two hundred thousand impressions of people just just basically going over and giving me a good duffing up. It was really quite a strange and slightly disturbing experience. So the mob the mob on Twitter when it turns is is really quite something to behold. Yeah, and they will stone you. But the the it's quite interesting because because Elon Musk in in on one hand a moment ago we had him as sort of representative of the technocratic. Um, subsidy ESG world, and now we've got him as this defender of of COVID nineteen fraud. So maybe he's one of those that switch from remain to to leave through the medium of lockdown, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Those in the in the turncoat area. How do you think future generations will look back at the way we've dealt with this? This, this one of the things I speak about in my podcast all the time. I just I, I keep I keep throwing in little messages to my son. If I ever kicked a bucket and he just... Oh, well, like, a, like a little time capsule. Yeah, yeah. So when he's looking out in the fucking Mad Max dystopia, <laughs> when he's kind of like eating some dead rat, he can at least, not very least knows that his old man... You know, like a lot of people in the first lockdown, it, it was unknown. But as I saw his career in towards doing it again, I, I did I did fall into a funk, gentlemen. I just thought, I cannot believe, like... Like and and also the naivety of just simply thinking that you can prop up employees with furlough, but the but the people that run businesses won't just lose their bottle as well, you know? Because you think, well, we came back once, takes a lot of energy to reopen a shop or a restaurant, you know, keep it keep paying. I mean, the other things like business rates, a lot of that stuff never went away. You know, for individual staff, it was a lot better than it was for people who actually owned business. And um, yeah, I, I I mean, I I'm terrified um, for for. My son, because there's, let's be honest, there's a lot of people this has worked out all right for. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people that you certainly in the first wave got 80 percent plus 20 percent from their employer, and without any travel costs. But if you if you if you dared to do something for yourself, well, you got you got a got a kick in. Then you, then it happened again, and it's happening again right now. I mean, so, so on that point, do you do you, what do you think is going to be the political mood music? Do you think my own feeling would be that Boris is probably uh, if I were the Conservative Party and thank. Christ, I'm not. Um, Boris would be out of office um, on the second of January. Once, once the once the basically Brexit in name only is finally finally delivered. Well, it's a question of what what you do with a resource like Rishi Sunak, um, and you know his his evident <laughs> popularity. Are you suggesting organ harvesting? <laughs> well, maybe just cryogenically freezing to the next election because. <laughs> What you what you don't really want necessarily is for him because he's he's a good resource. You know, if you want to yeah. win another election, he and he does seem to actually be a conservative, which is refreshing. But is is that there's a lot of collateral that could be inflicted on him by what's going to happen between now 
and, and that election. And maybe it's, but you know, could, could his popularity survive all that time? You know, if he's going to be chancellor, he's going to be chancellor for a very difficult period as well. You know, maybe it's worth keeping Boris on to ride out that rough bit mm. too. Then, you know, bring on Rishi when the uh, when the new ball's gone a bit soft and the bowlers are getting tired. But there is there is talk that Boris basically desperately needs to earn some money and he needs to earn more than he's getting his PM, so he might go back to a, a, a writing gig. <laughs> hey, we've all done that in this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, uh, the, the the strangest coincidences for me is that I was at the same school as um, Stuart Lee. He was in the year above me and uh, had the honour of doing a few of the things that he wrote. And although I don't share Stuart's uh, what I think of what I think is Stuart's politics, I would have to give him credit for what I think is possibly one of the finest pieces of comedy art in history, which is his account of the death of Princess Diana. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't. No, it's like a t- seen it. It's very good. It's like a ten, twelve minute long monologue about a, a couple and the, the husband and the wife reacting, coping with the, the news of a sudden death. And it has the most, it has the one of the funniest payoffs I think I've ever heard in comedy. It's inspired. I have to check it out. Like, like the joke, the aristocrats, perhaps. Um, uh, perhaps, perhaps. But well, the thing about Stuart Stuart Lee, and this is the thing, is a lot of people presume that people like myself and Dominic. I'm not saying that you were, but that, that we wouldn't like him. But you know, I have no issue with like left wing comedy. But I think particularly if you're going to play it high status, then it needs to be really fucking good. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's the same as like if you're going to go dark. Like like Frankie Boyd and make sure that the jokes are really good. But I suppose yeah. what maybe happened in the last few years was people are playing it with all the moral certainty and all the high status, but without without the jokes. Mm. So this is going to go out as our Christmas special. So we've got to ask you, what are you guys hoping for Christmas? I want to get a really easy to play guitar. <laughs> it's called a keyboard. <laughs> Well, is it a, is that right? A keyboard's easy to play. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it, it, it is in terms of my advice to you if you're going to learn to play the guitar is don't buy a cheap one because everybody does that. They buy their kids like the 150 pound um, amp guitar and, and everything's chucked in, and then the action's like a cheese grate, and the action, action's how far the strings are off the uh, off the fretboard. So it's really hard to play, and it sounds like crap. So it's worth doing a bit of research and getting a decent um, guitar to start with, and it'll be much easier to play, and it'll sound really nice. But no, I mean, I was just kidding. I play the guitar, so I know a little bit about it. Okay, because I play the ukulele. I've got to a reasonable standard of proficiency in the ukulele, but I feel my act would have more gravitas if I played the guitar rather than the ukulele in it. It would go a bit Bill Bailey, though, wouldn't it? Well, no, he's a he'll he's a much better musician than I'll ever be. But he's, he's he always does. Isn't he? He's more keyboards, man, isn't he? Yeah. Well, he's a good guitarist as well. But he does deconstruct. <laughs> he deconstructs songs. That's what he does. Whereas I, I, I like to feel I create new songs. So, so you're talking about acoustic then, or would you want an electric? No, I want. Well, I'd probably get what they call electroacoustic, Paul, mm. which is an acoustic one that you can plug in. Mm, yeah. Okay. The reason I would do that ahead of an electric guitar is that I'm more likely to practice an acoustic one because it's something you can just pick up around the house. Yeah. This is the tip I've been given. Yeah, but you can't play it late at night. Um, hmm. uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've got... Oh, well, unless you have a soundproof studio, presumably. Well, you can get little practice amps and you just shove your headphones in and it's it's pretty easy. So I wouldn't let that 
that influence your view of you know what you want. And remember, when you're gigging, it's um, an, an gigging. Acoustic. What's that? What's that, granddad? What's that, granddad? It's uh, it's much harder to gig with a acoustic because it's a bit more fragile than an electric that you can just sort of chuck over in the corner. But that those are just small issues, really. Um, you've you've got if you've got a new album out, Dominic. Yeah, it came out last week. Oh, what's it called? Uh, Anthems for the ex- Excommunicated. <laughs> Great stuff. I'm I'm you- very pleased with it, and and my guitar. So so this all started because I was having ukulele lessons, and then um, I discovered that my ukulele teachers are rampant, like rampant libertarian. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just sort of we didn't talk about politics, but I just occasionally make remarks, and I could just see him like. Um, uh, you know, reacting to the remarks. And then I said, I've got this idea for this song. I'm secretly in love with Nigel Farage was our first composition. <laughs> and he just wrote this brilliant kind of um, solely, really easy to play song for it. And then the next one, I said, I've got this idea for this song about Brexit. And, and he wrote all the music uh, uh, for that Brexit song, but he won't put his name on anything because he's scared it'll stop him getting other work. So he's finally come out with a pseudonym, which is Noah Fleetwood. So if you ever know, if you ever see the musician Noah Fleetwood on anything, you'll know that he's more libertarian than you are. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So, so Jeff, we didn't get around to hearing what, what you're hoping to get for Christmas. Uh, uh, Clothes. I realized that this year, and this is, this is just, Trampish behaviour. I haven't bought a single item of new clothes this year. Well, we haven't needed anything from the waist down, have we, really? Well, G- but... Given Zoom. Did the women have still been buying the clothes, haven't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's I mean, therapy, how, isn't it? How often... I mean, one of the great things I enjoy about my... I've carved a niche where I can still rampantly stereotype about the sexes, and I enjoy it, because I think, broadly speaking, it's true. And I would say that for a lot of households... The door goes about three or four times a day with just fucking Amazon, shit. Amazon. just shit being delivered to your house. Yeah. And and I've noticed as well that the, uh, my wife is the the old thing. Do you remember like our parents' generation? It'd be the wife hiding the new shoes at the back of the cupboard or in the loft or something. Now it's how the hell do you dispose of Amazon boxes without hubby seeing it before it gets into recycling? <laughs> and she is good, man. She she gets rid of them like. Like people dissolve bodies in acid. They just, <laughs> she puts them away. But, but you know, this sounds like I'm knocking women, but God, without them, there is no capitalism. You know, there's no, there's none of this. There's no consumerism whatsoever. So I accept it. But I, I do think that I'm just going to need just, just everything's faded now. <clears throat> I just look, my, my clothes, I don't know if I'm depressed, but my clothes are, they're down. Did you, did, did you develop fairly healthy face fur? Yes. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I've never been one for like the, the big beard, but I, w- I went up a notch on the old uh, Wilkinson shape <laughs> up from a three to a four. And that, that felt like a big move. Yeah. I've, I've got some beautiful suits that um, a friend of mine who's a tailor, the libertarian tailor, made for me. <laughs> You've got a great top hat as well, haven't you? Don't yeah. You? Well, that's, yeah, that was actually off Amazon. But, and <laughs> I just haven't worn any of them this year Excuse me. it has been like i'm just being in dad jeans yeah i won't even wear nice i think oh i'm not going out today so i don't even have nice shirts anymore everything's it's it, my wardrobe is is 
gone the same way as the stock market in April. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the best, the best line I heard at the time. I was chatting my colleague Killian uh, by phone, and we were watching markets collapsing. And I, this must have been on Twitter from some guy who was a day trader in the states. He said, "Guys, the trades we place tonight will echo in eternity." <laughs> <laughs> this has been such an odd year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is weird. from Gladiator, that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like, you know, uh, Dominic's like very, very up on financial stuff. I, I, I'm interested in money to the point where I just check BBC market data about three times a day. That's it. I don't really dig much more than me. Well, I mean, I just, I just want to see that, you know, roughly that one of the, because I, I didn't understand for ages how, how the, uh, the pound could collapse, but that could help the FTSE. I didn't realise for a while. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily always a good sign if the FTSE was going up. Well, it's not intuitively obvious any of this no. stuff. I mean, the, the first ex, the first experience, I, the first seminal experience I had in my career was the uh, Sterling's Great Ethnic Cleansing from the ERM in 1992, and you know half the half the country got that one wrong because everyone's saying, "Oh my God, it's going to be a disaster." And then cheaper sterling led to, and us being out of the exchange rate mechanism led to massive economic boost. So uh, we should have done it years years beforehand. Ninety-five percent of what what's what's out there is uh, as newsworthy for yeah. for the markets is bullshit anyway. It's, mm. it's a lot if you look at it. It's all after the fact. Um, you know, post, ex- post hoc, post post hoc, hoc rationalizing. Yeah, post hoc rationalizing of what's just happened. So if you really look at it, it's not actually information, but it sounds like it. They make it sound, they're clever, they make it sound like it, you know, but you may as well be told what yesterday's weather was like because it's, yeah. it's, it's the same stuff. Um, what, the, what the mainstream media is very good at is, is completely missing the point that markets are always looking forward to anticipate stuff. So what you often get is you'll get some twat at the FT or BBC saying, you know, so you, you get some good news from a company. Okay. So say good news from Sainsbury's and Sainsbury's stock price goes down. They go, well, what was that all about? Well, it's because even better news was priced in. So the fact that the news was actually only quite good, it wasn't good enough. You know, the market is always looking forward and, you know, the quality of financial journalism is generally just abysmal in this country. It's, it's very short term and it's, it's not really very rigorous um and a lot of the time to be fair they are just feeding a machine that wants daily updates you know half daily updates minute updates so they're always trying to find something to say even if there isn't there's and there's always something going on the in the world that you can attribute to a market move and it's a bit like religion you can't really argue against it because nobody knows quite why the markets move. So if you say that Joe Biden said something and the market's gone down or up, no one can question you because it's like, well, that, that's what you're saying is the truth. We had some fun a few years ago, Killian and myself. Uh, we were putting some satirical tweets on Twitter and we were using the hashtag financial media clutching at straws. So it'd be like, well, why is the FTSE down today? It'll be because David Beckham's made a pronouncement about Meghan's baby, financial media clutching at straws. You're like, you have just completely random things causing the market to move up or down. Well, it does seem that certainly with Brexit and, you know, even as as we're talking, like, you know, Barnier uh, hints that he might be spending weekend in Belgium. Uh, <laughs> you know, these are, these are often seen as... Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. like, if he if he is not gaming that system, he's a fucking idiot. Do you know what I mean? Like, just reaching out to his family, like, by the way, I'm going to put something on Instagram of me at the Eurostar terminal. Just get a little bit on with the currencies because there'll be some movement. He'd be an idiot. 
if he hasn't taken advantage of that. <laughs> the thing is, Jeff, it's like this that this that was levied at uh, Farage. Um, we know. Do you remember when Farage on the night of Brexit sort of conceded defeat or was said to have conceded defeat? And the conspiracy that emerged afterwards that is that he did that in order to manipulate the forex markets. Like the forex markets are so huge for one person, like even Mark Carney, who would do his utmost to crash the pound with every utterance he made, <laughs> struggled to move. Thank God that fucker's gone back to Canada, right? <laughs> he's coming back. He's going to make sure your your fund is ethical, Tim. <laughs> so. By the time this podcast goes out, most of this year will be gone and we'll be looking at the new year. What are your plans for next year? What are you hoping to achieve? Books, tours, what what let's get some positivity out there. Um, I got a book coming out in May, which is already available for pre-order. Uh, it's called Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me. And that's a that's sort of like a memoir come sort of it's sort of like a worm's eye view of all the big formative political moments that took someone that on paper should have been left wing and ended up making them you know a bit of a tory that's and a then, clever title i like that well the, the funny we wanted to get to that but there are titles in that area and then suddenly we just happened upon that you know annoyingly a lot of them from left wingers they have the word right in which pissed me off uh, but we did get to a decent title in the end and then there's a a tour which could it, jeff i've written it yeah i mean that's the weird thing but because it because it's with a you know a decent publisher they uh they they've they got these they've oh these these leading times are insane so i hope so, so i mean it already some of it might not make sense because of covid because i finished it in like may um but that's gonna be in the end it's sort of like it's a time capture in a way because it goes up only till the night of the the 2019 general election so hopefully it kind of compresses that period if you know what i mean like a, a time capture and then there'll be a new tour uh, from eight, in April and May, called "I Blame the Parents," <laughs> which I just I just love it because it's just such a conservative sentiment, and I've just made it a title. I blame you know that moment where you just go, "I blame the parents." <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's quite liberating to have somebody to to blame, and then you know all things being equal, you know um, people having you know coming with their masks and their vaccines, needles hanging out of their arms. Hopefully, that'll give them enough <laughs> confidence to sit near another human being. And the the exercise of writing this first book, and as you're saying, you know, obviously a lot's happened since you've written it as well. Would you want to write another one? Uh, yeah, I mean, what I've done in a way is I've made it personal and political, but I haven't done much about comedy in this one. So there might be right. something else about, you know, the experience I've had in comedy. Um, you know, if I'm if, if 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 everyone stops booking me and it's time to burn a few bridges, then. Um, there might be some home truths, but yeah, I'd quite like to write a story. I know, I know Dominic's written one, like, uh, you know, written an out and out creative thing about time travel and stuff. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to do something high concept like that. Yeah. Cause Dominic, I remember you mentioning it on our podcast a while back. You would, you, you would, you had the, the, the germ of an idea. So w w where is that now? This is that, that germ of an idea, Paul has become. The Shadow Punk Revolution. Fantastic. Which is a sci-fi rock musical, a sci-fi rock drama about invisibility. And it's set 10 years in the future. And we had a lockdown. Well, I wrote it before lockdown, but here 
get this. Uh, techno activists have invented new <clears throat> coats of invisibility to defend against corporate and state invasion of privacy. Oh my God. So if we are in a lockdown, you just put on your invisibility coat and nice. you can go out. Nice. And the whole thing's a metaphor for Bitcoin. And um, it's, I used to love all the concept albums of the 1970s, War of the Worlds and things like that. And the idea was to sort of revisit that form. But I put it out as an audio book on um, Audible. And uh, it's so far sold 187 copies. <laughs> uh, 188. Yeah, 189. But it's, I have to say, it's shit hot, but nobody's, nobody's buying it. Well, hopefully we'll give you a bump, get you up to the 200 mark. Yeah. Thank you. So so plan, plans for next year for you, Dominic? Well, I'm working on another project. My dad wrote a music. My dad passed away in April, and um, his, one of the things, he was a fairly well-known playwright, but the best thing he ever wrote was a play called Kisses on a Postcard, all about his um, experiences as an evacuee in World War II. And I sort of described it. It, it became a, a musical um which we tried to get on in the west end in the uh, in the noughties it's one of the reasons i ended up getting into finance actually because i was trying to raise we needed to raise three and a half million quid to get it on in the west end and so i was sort of one of the reasons i got in, in, into investing was to try and raise the money to do that wow and um I, i'm afraid i didn't succeed and the cost of putting it on in the west end was just too big but anyway he died and he's left this fantastic play which is you know, I've had the theatre shoved down my throat ever since I could walk, and I've always thought it was awful. You know, you very rarely see anything good, but this was the best thing I've ever seen in the theatre. And it's like having this huge gold mine that we just need to build the infrastructure to mine it. So one of the things I'm working on is a is an audio version of it, an audio-only version of it, which I can do. I have the wherewithal to do that to a very high standard. And hopefully, at least then, that the play will be preserved somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, a dramatization of it. And maybe, you know, who knows, Andrew Lloyd Webber or someone, the National Theatre or Cameron McIntosh or someone might actually listen to it and decide they wanted to, they want to do it. Would it lend itself to a screenplay and the film rights? Perhaps? Yeah, oh, totally. Um, it, it actually, Dad, it started as a radio play in 1984 and then it was going to be a film. Ken Loach optioned it as a film. And really? It, it just, and it's just one of those things. It happens a lot. It just never got made. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, but it's like if you imagine Oliver, it's like that, but for Vaki's kids in World War Two. Right. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's that's my. I've just finished the script. Actually, I've just got to get Noah Fleetwood <laughs> to work on the music. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, Tim, um, should we just should we disclose some of our plans for the next few weeks, Paul? It's yeah. It's completely up. That's completely up to you. So we're we're trying to record some protest songs to you know end the lockdowns. So doesn't work. Really? <laughs> well, you well, got us over the line at Brexit. Uh, well, it definitely did its little bit. So I'm I'm going through my I'm I'm from Birmingham, so I've got a kind of Midlands Brummy beat um, uh, sort of background. So I'm I'm looking furiously going through my back catalogue as, as to what what songs we can raid and and subtly change the lyrics for, and the one. I think because my my older sister had a copy of Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf and I was growing up, I've so far managed to do a full set of revised lyrics for Bat Out of Hell and 
the 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 titles seem to work for for Meatloaf for some reason. So I'm also working with Paul now on. Do you remember the Bat Out of Hell album? Sort of. I, I remember the cover because yeah. it's 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 just wild. It's just wildly out of control rock opera. So it's exactly up your strata, I suspect. Yeah. Given what you said, and so far the I think my favourite to to play with is um uh, oh god what the hell is it called now? So you've got you've got Dead Ringer for Love. And the chorus is going to be something like, I don't, know, I don't know anything about you, baby, but you're everything I'm dreaming of. Um, I don't know who you are, but should you not be wearing a glove? And um, that one's obviously not going to work. And uh, then what's the other one? Nice. And the you other can't, one. Is... You can't see our smiling faces. Because <laughs> that's really what we're after. We're after a slightly, Jeff's slightly just, he's, he's musical. Gone. <laughs> no, I've just, uh, just had a military uh, uh, aircraft go overhead here. So I. <laughs> I don't know whether this podcast will actually make Christmas. It feels like things might be stepping up again. Yeah, it's really kicking off now. Bill Gates' black helicopters have come to arrest us all. And the and the other one is, um, um, oh God, I've, I can't remember. I've done this and I can't even remember the lyrics now. Um, Helping ages past. No, it was. It's another meatloaf one, and it's um, you took it's you took the words right out of my mouth. But it'll be you took COVID right out of my mouth. It must have been while I was kissing you. And anyway, I, that, that struck me as being quite funny, but. Clearly, I need to go and revise my expectations about humour quite seriously. Well, reversioning songs is a is a it's a device. It's a noble, it's noble, well. noble calling. But it's it, the problem with you doing it online is that as soon as you do it online, you get into you can get in all sorts of problems with YouTube advertising and yeah. things like that. I mean, not that you're doing it for the money, but you've got to you just got to be a bit careful. Use the um, there's a website called karaokeversion.com. And you can the 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 karaoke versions on that site are really close to the original. Oh, and you can just you can, you can just pay for them, can you? Buy them off. Yeah, the they're like two two or three quid each. Oh, done, done. Um, have you seen um Bill Gates? Bill Gates is a wanker. Yeah, the video. <laughs> I have. I quite like that one. It's uh, it's um uh, old school comedy that one, yeah. but it's effective. Yeah. So, um, what do you think? Ten media picks or? Yeah, why not? Let's go for it. Yeah. Okay. So we normally do a media picks round where we just share a really brilliant film, book, or something that's terrible. And Tim's obviously talked about Run for Your Wife, so that could be the terrible one. Yeah. But um, given that this is a Christmas special, we thought, what's what's your favourite Christmas movie? Um, I well, I, one that's gotten started to annoy me recently. Do you remember when like Elf, like no one even knew about the film Elf, and then it sort of became a cult hit. But now the people that annoy me are the ones that recommend it as though it's still a cult hit rather than a go-to. <laughs> it's a bit short. passe, isn't it, really? Yeah, Elf. they kind of go, do you know what me and my family really love? I'm like, no, don't tell me, like, this film called Elf. And, like, it's just it's just a default thing. And it, it is it is a funny film. Um, I do like a, I do like a bit of Mary Poppins over the festive period, but she's maybe she's a, she's a bit more of an Easter thing. I, I can't explain why. Um, <laughs> is, that, is that your intern? Uh, she's uh well i mean like it doesn't mean discuss about how sexy mary poppins is i <laughs> she just i think judy waters was like 28 or something and she just you know i mean and then let you know emily blunt sort of captured some of that it's that matronly mm. thing isn't it you yeah. just yeah and i think for there's an implicit there's, impl- there's an implied spanking going on there's yeah yeah i mean like you know and if she can do that with a magic bag what else can she <laughs> <laughs> i watched um you know, she was. I watched um, uh, uh, My Fair Lady on Monday, 
And, you know, Julie Andrews was supposed to play um, Audrey Hepburn. And then Audrey Hepburn was given the part. And Julie Andrews apparently had the right raw hump that it was given to Audrey Hepburn. Little bit of trivia no, for No, I didn't know that. No, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and Audrey Hepburn was dubbed. This, her singing was dubbed because she couldn't sing. Whereas Julie Andrews was a much better singer, but probably not quite as beautiful as Audrey Hepburn. She's got an amazing voice, hasn't she, Julie Andrews? Um, yeah, fantastic. Great set of lungs. <laughs> you know what we did there as as blokes? Because we made a bawdy comment. Yeah. We, didn't, we had to paper over it by paying testament to actual ability. Yeah. You know, yeah. Really. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as a 13-year-old boy watching Mary Poppins on my own. I was thinking, she is, you don't get many of them to the pan, do you? She is note perfect. <laughs> 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 well, if Jeff is going to have, um, we're going to go down this route. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Bad Santa. So I think the first Bad Santa is terrific. It uh, is good, Bad and, Santa. And I, I know it's a market one, but I absolutely love Trading Places. Right. I, I, I don't think you can top that for a Christmas movie, personally. It's just. Yeah, I was just thinking that, and it, it catches the debauchery of Christmas very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we have made it in our house as well, a bit of a Christmas tradition, you know, only for a couple of years now, watching that Bross documentary, because we first watched it shortly before Christmas a few years ago. And um, it, it gets better with age, actually. Oh, I've, not, I've, I've not seen so it. Good. I've heard it's brilliant. Oh, really? It's just... It's just it's just incredible, but also I think it, there is something oddly festive because they're, they're quite camp characters in their own way. But there there was a period of fame that they lived in, and I wonder if they were perhaps the last people to live through it. If you know what I mean, because there were less channels. Do you know what I mean people weren't as saturated? Even by the time of Take That, they were popping up on every show, weren't they? You know, doing interviews for everyone. They still they've 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 got that kind of Michael Jackson style delusion about them. Um, <laughs> Because they were, yeah, they were all over everything. So, we, so we'll probably, we'll probably give Matt and Luke a little. Uh, we'll check in with them over the festive period. Brilliant. Brilliant. Can I say? Can I say my festive? My festive film is an unoriginal un- one, but it's it's got to be. It's a Wonderful Life, just because I just think it's just the best film ever made, and and obviously it's a Christmas film. But it also when we were talking about, you know, how will our future generations look back at us and how we've handled COVID nineteen? It's a Wonderful Life sort of drew on a tradition where people did things, you know, like the people of the Victorians or something, they would build a building to last for generations and or a to sewer be remembered system. by. And they were, yeah, or a sewer system. And they were just really conscious of their legacy. Mm. And that that attitude just seems to have gone. Definitely. It's a, it's a the, rental economy, isn't it? It's like yeah. until the next, and, until they can sell but, it to you again, basically. Could I just mention another Christmas film very quickly? And this were, this is... Uh, in 1994, I went to Cuba and I spent six weeks in Cuba, which was uh, uh, longer than you were supposed to. And I nearly got into trouble for overstaying the welcome. And it was about a year or two after the boat people. Do you remember everyone trying to escape on the boats and um, get, get across to Florida and people dying? And it was sort of maybe not quite at the at the nadir of Cuba's poverty, but it was only a year or two out of it. And, you know, it was still an extraordinarily poor country and it had nothing. And I went there um, and I wrote a chapter about it, actually, in my book, Life After the State. And it was why every Cuban father wants his son to be, wants his daughter to be a hooker. 
And the reason for that is, is that you'd have like brilliant Cuban engineers uh, or professors or whatever being paid the equivalent of $35 a month. And um, then you had, um, you know, Cuban <coughs> teenage girls who would earn that from a tourist. Uh, well, and, you know, three or four times that from a tourist in a night. And it was just created this most distorted of economies where everyone with any entrepreneurial zeal was either being a taxi driver or a hooker because it was the only way you could get foreign dollars. Mm. And, uh, and you'd have these, and it was just the classic case of when socialism doesn't work. And I went there as a deluded young socialist, uh, you know, just straight out of university. And, you know, I had high ideals when I went there about, you know, the Cuban education system and the Cuban healthcare and all of this. And I was like, what's the point of having a brilliant healthcare system if there's no medicine in the hospital? What's the point of having a brilliant education system if there's no pen and paper in the schools? You know, sounds, sounds a bit like Britain now. <laughs> anyway, but I went there with all these ideals and it was the sort of first puncturing of left wing ideals, I think, that I suffered in my life. But at one point... <coughs> I ended up in this open air cinema and they were screening Home Alone oh, in this open air yeah. cinema. Yeah, good and call. Home Alone is possibly the most consumerist film ever made. It certainly was, you know, whenever it was made in, I guess, early 90s. 91, I'm thinking. 91. And it was just so consumerist. And it was all set at Christmas and this little kid uses all the toys and things yeah. that he's given as a way of finding it's a great and, film it is a great film though it is a great film and it's got some great comic performances and some of the best slapstick talk about people falling over being funny well you know you've got some of the best falling over routines ever ever seen in cinema in that film but i remember going to this open air and i don't know how they got hold of it in this theater but they screened this film and i was absolutely furious on behalf of the Cubans, <laughs> in the same way that, you know, people perceive sexism or racism, whatever it is, and get um, infuriated on behalf of the of the actual victims. But I was I did that left wing thing of being really offended by the fact that they chose um, home uh, uh, home alone because it was so tactless to these poor Cubans who had absolutely nothing. The poverty in Cuba, I, I can't um, describe how. People had nothing. How long, how, how long ago was it? 94. 94. And, and I was just so angry and watched the Cubans all watch this film and they just laughed and laughed and they loved it almost without exception. I've, I don't think I've ever seen that film, a film go down as well as it did. Was it not the case that in the depression, the, the things that they started belting out were all basically high, high, high value uh, musicals yeah. and um, stuff like that. So it was escapism. There was ex escapism galore, but you know, they were on the side of the little kid. They got who was the baddie, who was the goodie and all that. And it was also just like, you know, throughout, throughout the 20th century, America through Hollywood has always exported optimism and hope and, and all these other you know, positive emotions. And, you know, Until Hollywood now. has always been the most Until fantastic now. advert for America. Um, maybe not so much anymore, but it did used to be. And, and 
you know, it, it was just so apparent then. I just the juxtaposition of Home Alone in Cuba and then the reaction of the Cubans to it. I'll never forget it. I mean, even by Western standards, the size of that house and the amount of money and they're flying first class and everything else, it's like you take you take a sort of step back and look at it and go... Look. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it must have, they must have thought they were watching Spacemen or something. It was just complete another world. Yeah. But that's one thing about American films I always found odd growing up was you kind of thought, even in um, even the poor people in America seem to have a porch. Yeah, that, and a know, huge house. Yeah. <laughs> impoverished household, they'll just be sitting out in the front on a big chair on a porch. I go, you know, but just it's very got relative. They, they've all got cars. Um, yeah, I've always found, you know, it, it, it became very uncool to be in awe of the States, but they've been kind of um, flogging me dreams my whole life. And, and and that formative period, you know, those family films of the 80s, it really set my dial, you know, like Back to the Future, the Goonies, films like that. I mean, not, not so much the Goonies in terms of kind of how we deal with statemented children, but, you know, the, the other films like Back to the Future and and Fly the Navigator. I don't know, just, just America just always seemed better, but then that became like a really naff thing to say, you know? But um, plus we had plus we had Arnie, and I, I don't think you can really do a review, do a review of eighties films without giving Arnie credit because he was in half of them. And my 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 favorite, I think my favorite Arnie line is a little known one. This one, I think it's I think it's uh, I forget what it's called now, but he plays like a ranger, and he comes in at the start of the film, and his wife's been on the sauce all day, and it's his birthday, but he's come home late, and she throws a chocolate cake at him. And the chocolate cake misses him and splats on the wall and just sort of slowly, messily, you know, smears down the wall. And he just says, you should not drink and bake. <laughs> Arnie didn't write the line. He just delivered no, it, Tim. He didn't, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, I just think that well, every time I go to the States, it just still feels a bit magical, you know? It's I just fantastic. I, I just remember, like, American jeans. Do you remember what a huge thing was, having American jeans? My mum bought an American washing machine, and it was like, it's, it's American. It's just better than ink. Like, how good can a washing machine be? But she had an, she had to have this American washing machine. Well, everyone's an American, got American fridge. Every, I was going to say, Mary, everyone's got those little silvery American fridges now. How? The, 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 the double door jobs. How well did the American GIs bang our grandparents? That women for generations <laughs> we're just convinced that American stuff is just simply better. I mean, they really left their mark. I'll do it for a pair of nylons and a bag of chips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Dominic, are you, are you, what's your pod status at the moment? Are you doing pods, podcasts? Yeah. Um, well, no, I did have one and it was quite successful for a bit, but I just, it was just too much work, but, um, I might have, I've been doing, this guy pays me to interview libertarians for him and they're quite nice little interviews. So I might stick them up on my podcast because I don't know what he does with the interviews. Okay, there can't be that many of us around, to be honest. Po what, libertarian? Libertarians, yeah. Well, it's such a, podcasting such a crowd. I mean, Jeff's yeah. podcast... Delling poll, there's, there's, it's a crowded marketplace. But the cream will rise. It did. Oh, I don't oh, believe well. in that. I just, I've worked in comedy long enough to know that the cream doesn't rise. So you're saying that the the other thing is, and this is just true, and it's not bitching or moaning, but when you are right of centre and in the arts world, there just is a smaller audience, or or certainly it's harder to find your audience. And you just, you look at Twitter, and you you just see 
how like that guy james melville that tweets all the time he, he tweets some funny stuff some stuff that's just okay but you watch it go like fucking mental and you think even the very best funniest tweet that came from a right of center humorist would never really do those numbers some stuff might go a bit big yeah so it, it, it just is a bit different and you just sort of have to accept that but equally i do find that if you find the audience that i think that they're really loyal and that they they can't. They want to support it as well. So it That's does exactly fit. what I was going to say. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you look at you look at a lot of those left wing guys on Twitter. This doesn't apply to James Melville, but there are other other comics who have just got followings in the hundreds of thousands. But a lot of the time, it's just because they've been on the BBC. Mm. It's just because they're on Radio Four a lot. Quickly on that note, is the BBC going to survive in its current anything like its current form into the future? Well, like a like a complete Quislin, um, and as someone who sits on the diversity panel, I say like you know Tim David. I think he's got, really got the right attitude. You know, what I mean, he he really he does get it. I mean, he's up against a massive machine, huge machine. I mean, he almost couldn't be bigger. But I, I would say that I don't. I think that in terms of what he sees to be the priorities, he's got his head screwed on. Mm. But I, I just think that both with the corporation itself. And also the market that they're competing against, the streaming market, and you know, and the, the fact that shows like look at look at a successful show on Amazon Prime like The Boys, right? Mm. The budget of that, the fact that they aren't as, f- as afraid to go into dark areas or just explode someone's head every five minutes. Mm. You know, it's just it's so hard to compete in that market. So I think that they've got the right person, but I don't know if the bigger challenges are surmountable. Well, but- I, I, I've got a couple of thoughts about that. Is is firstly. With regard to the budgets, often what you find them doing now in order to to compete with budgets is they do joint ventures, and it'll be only on the BBC in the UK, but it'll be on Amazon or Netflix everywhere else in the world. But, you know, I I don't necessarily think the BBC should be trying to, you know, it was never trying to compete with Hollywood, Mm. making, you know, it did Doctor Who, it was clever. You know, it would would find clever ways of doing stuff when you don't have a big budget. And so that's what I think it should be doing. But I do know that, like, while a lot of people just want the whole thing to be defunded and 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 the license fee not to be compulsory, which is kind of where I stand on it, I think it should just be voluntary and then, mm. then it can be whatever it wants to be. There is an agenda, um, and Tim Davies part of this, to not to keep the license fee, to keep control of it and and dewoke it because there's a there's a fear that if you make the license fee voluntary you're just creating you're letting loose this huge untethered left-wing monster mm. gender out there to stop that happening we've already got the nhs <laughs> yeah but that's not voluntary mm. Uh, and Jeff, you've got you've got your own podcast, which is it's fair to say it's pretty high profile in the in the in the world of pods, isn't it? Uh, it does all right. I mean, I'll, I always try and be as brutally honest as possible. I do okay numbers, but if you look at the absolute, you know, the top twenty comedy things, I mean, I know what some of those guys do, and my, mine is nowhere near that. I'm, I'm a good championship level club. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Might we might we might challenge for the playoffs, but honestly, some of the numbers are are eye watering. Where you listen to them and you think. Oh, it's good. It's all right, but um, but like I say, I've got what I do have is 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 a loyal niche, and it you know one thing it has done is it's grown during lockdown. A lot of people have found their numbers have gone down because people aren't commuting yeah. as much, and 
And yeah, I, I realised if someone had pointed it out to me, I've done four national tours and someone come up to me as I did a show actually in the bit where we could recently and said, why don't you plug your podcast at the live shows? I thought, what a fucking idiot. I've had like <laughs> had hundreds of people. Like, it's the best way. You know, a lot of those people that come to my shows, they're not on Twitter or Facebook or mailing lists or anything like that. And and every single night, I've just been going, see ya. <laughs> I have one request, because I know you have a, a cuss count with, with a friend of yours, David Domain. Um, so I think we we want to go down, we want to go down um, hard, as it were. So I want, I want us to go out on a bit of a, you know, on a bit of a, uh, you know what I mean? What a swear fest. Go, go, get on fighting. So we want to have a real cunting, make a real cunting what? wank fest of it. I do think I've dropped a lot of fuckings as I've talked because I know you know people often say that swearing isn't big or clever. I, I think it. I think it's both. I think it's both. It's both, and it helps me be funny. It does. So I'm not. I'm fuck that. I, I'm sticking with it. And and the good thing about the cuss count is I've been able to. It's basically a way of saying I'm unable to change, but I've made a format out of that. <laughs> <laughs> you've embraced it yeah gentlemen it's been an absolute pleasure really has thank you so much for coming on our special Christmas podcast we're, we're, we're sort of second division in Botswana Jeff so <laughs> yeah that's you know. right yeah but, but people that listen to this have got a few quid you know what I mean so like they actually count not, as not in Botswana they haven't <laughs> that's the new market then Merry Christmas everyone <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas <laughs> That was my best Botswana accent. (laughs) Awesome. It's been a pleasure. It's been such fun. Thank you, chaps. Thanks, guys. And a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for being a listener this year and for previous years. Tim and I really do appreciate it. And we wish you a very happy and prosperous 2021. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.